Father, as we open your word again this morning and as we come before you with hearts ready to study and to learn, Father, let us uh, first examine our own hearts as Scripture calls us to do, to know for sure, Father, that we have approached you this morning with a full awareness, a full appreciation for our unworthiness. Father, we do not approach you on our own merit. We, we are not, in some sense, Father, uh, worthy of the opportunities you give us to study and to worship you, to be in your very presence by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Those are gifts, Father. We know that. We are reminded by your word of that. And we ask, Father, that uh, you would help us look inward this morning, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would be real. It would uh, open up opportunities in our life, Father, for us to examine what we do and why we do it. It would help us to appreciate, Father, that the standard, your standard, for holiness is so far away from the standard we typically live by, Father, from the, the things we see as good in, in our life and from the things we value so often, Father, they are nowhere near the standard that you've provided in your word. That though we claim, Father, to love you and to follow you, do we really, Father, love you with all our heart and all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, or just parts of those things? Father, do we truly love our neighbor as we love ourself? Can we honestly say, Father, as we sit before you now, that in every choice we make and in every decision of our day, we put others before ourselves? Father, we know the answers to those questions, and we pray, Father, that though we have failed at times past and will no doubt fail again, we do desire, Father, to obey. We are here this morning, Father, because we know that apart from you, we are nothing. And that through our obedience, Father, we show our faith. And by our faith, Father, we are made one of your children. And we thank you, Father, for those opportunities. We thank you that you saw enough of us and desired enough to know us and to love us, that you would give us this opportunity to study even this morning, Father, when so many others lack it. Let us not take it for granted either. Let us open the word this morning, Father, with a heart to be taught, a teachable heart, Father. For we will hear things, Father, we may not know. The Holy Spirit will convict us, Father, of things that we may not wish to do or change. And, Father, if we do no more than listen and walk out and continue in our ways, Father, we are no different than those who do not know you at all. But, Father, by our works, we will demonstrate our faith. And in faith, Father, we may please you. And we ask for the opportunity this morning, Father, to show our faith and our response to your word. And as we give this time to you, we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, we are in Luke, as you know, Luke chapter 11. If you have a Bible, please open it up there to that chapter. Uh, this morning, we go back into the early part of this chapter. And it's a pivotal chapter, as I said last week, though we have not yet really reached the point in the chapter that makes it so pivotal. And I'll explain that as we go through today and into next week. This week, we actually pick up in an idea, in a thought that extends from last week. Last week, we looked at the opening verses in chapter 11. And in those opening verses, we saw the prayer that's so commonly known by every Christian, heard and recited by many Christians, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, depending on how you learned it when you grew up. And we studied that prayer last week. We spent all our time in that prayer last week because the prayer is so familiar and so important, and yet I don't think we truly understand some of what it's trying to get us to, to do in our prayer life. And I, 
Hope we understood that better last week after we went through those verses. But I also suspect that our teaching in those verses last week had an undesirable consequence for many of you. If I'm right, I think the way that verse, those verses played out and the way that the exposition of the teaching played out, many of you may have left last week with a question in your mind, maybe wondering why to pray or even whether to pray. And you may have that feeling because so often our motivation for engaging in prayer to begin with comes to us because of self-centered desires. We approach the notion of prayer, the desire to pray, the moment of prayer from typically a perspective of what am I going to get out of it? Will God give me what I'm looking for? Will God answer my desires? Will he help the people I want him to help? Will he give me the things I want? I say they're self-centered, not because they're wrong in every respect. We use the word self-centered always in a negative connotation, and that's typically the right way. But I'm using it in somewhat less of a negative connotation. That, in other words, we're not being self-centered, necessarily, when we come to God and ask him to heal somebody. And yet it is self-centered in that we come into the prayer with our idea. It's our thought. It's our desire. It's our will. It's not necessarily God's. Part of the point in prayer, of course, is to try to understand what is God's will. So said another way, the more we have need of something from God, the more likely we are to give ourselves over to prayer in the hope that God is going to give us what we desire. That's what I mean by a self-centered interest in prayer. And we may have taken that impression from last week because when we broke down the model of the Our Father, of the Lord's Prayer last week, we noticed that when Jesus gave the instructions he gave to the disciples, we were confronted with a dilemma out of those verses. He told them, for example, to pray that God's will be done, that God's plan be done, that we would seek that his name would be declared mighty in all the world, that his kingdom would be established, that his will would be accomplished. And we also said last week that all those things are things that are already destined to occur. God is telling you to pray for things that are already destined to occur. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. His name will be glorified. It will be hallowed. He will provide us our daily needs because he's promised to do so. Our daily needs, remind you, not necessarily all our desires. And in closing, we said he does forgive us of our sins. Our sins have already been forgiven if we believe in the Lord for our salvation. So again, even in asking that our sins be forgiven, we're asking for something that's already occurred. So it it puzzled us. It left us in a state of wonder. Why is it that Jesus would give a model to his disciples that basically encouraged us to pray for things that are all according to God's will and therefore all according to his plan and will therefore occur? It leaves us wondering why bother to pray. And that's where we go now into the next series of verses in chapter 11 because as Jesus gave these instructions to the disciples, he understood this dilemma. He understood that the risk he took in how he described that model of prayer was that it might actually diminish the disciples' interest in participating in prayer. And we look at the next series of verses this morning because it's clear by what he says next that Jesus is concerned that we maintain a motivation to pray and he wants to provide, if you will, the other half of the story. The first half being what we studied last week, the second half today. Let's go to verses 5 and beyond as we see where Jesus goes next. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, even though he would not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This is a remarkable picture, I think, that Jesus presents of the Father in these verses. He's going to give us through these verses a window into the character, into the nature of God the Father. And into his purpose for prayer, even as he's offering us motivation for why we pray. And we're going to have to look at this in some detail, and then we're going to fit it into what we studied last week, so that we can see where Jesus is going with this teaching. In this story, there are two men, neighbors as we're told. And on one night, one of these men receives an unexpected visitor. And as it turns out, that man does not have enough bread in the house to provide that visitor with an adequate meal, which would have been the custom. Now, you're going to remember from studies we've done here in the past, when we went through the book of Genesis, for example, we studied at length at various points along in that study about the honor that was required, the honor that was attached to having a visitor in your home in Eastern culture in this day particularly. It's still that way today, but it was especially the case back then. A traveling visitor who comes upon you and expects you to give hospitality in your home was a great honor for the host, And there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the host to accommodate that visitor appropriately. And so you can understand the seriousness of this man's situation. Here he has a visitor show up unexpectedly, and he doesn't have enough food to accommodate him. For example, do you remember in Genesis when we talked about Lot in the city of Sodom? And he entertains those two angels, though he doesn't know they're angels. And what lengths did Lot go to to provide hospitality to those two men in the midst of that depraved city? He was willing to give the crowd outside the door his own daughters rather than let the men be accosted by that crowd. That's, to, that's a, a small example of the extent to which a host had to go to accommodate the needs of a visitor. Now, clearly Lot's approach was not the approved biblical approach for you and I or anyone for that matter, but it's a sign of how motivated he was to accommodate his visitor. So it's natural. This man has a visitor, no food. He's desperate. He runs next door to his neighbor and asks, for uh, three loaves of bread. Now, as the story goes on, this man in bed, he's not the least bit interested in helping his neighbor. And his reason for not wanting to help is that he's in bed with his children. Now, this is an important thing to understand. In that culture and in that day, you're talking, in most cases, about a one-room house. And in that one-room house, it goes worse. It's probably even worse than you're imagining. You'll have the entire family typically sharing a bed. Now, a bed doesn't sit up like a four-post bed like we experience. It's on the ground. It's got mats and it's got blankets or other kinds of material on the ground to make it more comfortable. But everyone's sort of under one big set of blankets and covers laying on the ground, family all together. And in most cases, the animals slept in there as well because there was no separate barn. Now, if if you're like me and you don't like a dog on the bed, can you imagine having goats next to you at night, sheep next to you at night? And in many cases, the husband may have been in the middle, as as the one who probably had the most honored place in the family. The the father may have had the nicest spot. Think about what's at stake if he has to get up and serve his neighbor. He's not just getting up himself. He's disturbing the entire household to give this man loaves of bread. So it's much easier from that point to lay in bed like this and say, go away. No, go away. And that's effectively the picture Jesus has drawn for those who are hearing this story, because that's their culture. That's their experience. Now, it's interesting to note that the sleeping man, we're told, is a friend of this desperate neighbor. And yet Jesus says, though he would not help the neighbor on the basis of being his friend, he would do it for other reasons. The point being here that friendship is one thing, but friend or no friend, there's only so much you're willing to do under these circumstances. So the friendship alone is not enough, in other words, to motivate this man to help the neighbor. 
What that tells us is if the man needing bread had been willing to settle for a no, what would have happened? If the man who came with the need knocked on the door, told the neighbor the situation, and the neighbor says, go away, I'm in bed. And the man had said, okay, turn around and left. He'd have had nothing. Though they were friends, he still got a no and would have left with nothing. But this man doesn't give up. Jesus says the man continues to knock. By persistence, he means continues to ask and ask and knock and knock and basically make a nuisance of himself to this person in bed. You can understand the point of it instinctively because I don't know that anyone wouldn't agree that there's no time of day where we're more willing to give in to a persistent request than when we're losing sleep in the middle of the night. If my kids ever figured this out, they'd be asking for their allowance at 2 a.m. consistently. Because at about that point in the day, when you're already in bed and maybe already asleep and woken up, there's pretty much nothing you won't do to get back to the point of sleep at that point in your day. That's the nature of the problem. We all understand that. We've all been there. So here's this guy now persistently knocking, keeping the whole family awake, and the guy says, oh, all right, all right, all right, all right. And he gets up and he gives them what he wants. This fact of life, this, this thing that's so easily understood for all of us, that you can only get some things through persistence, is the point Jesus now attaches to the subject of prayer. But there are a few points here that we now have to bring out and consider if we're going to make this teaching fit into what we taught last week out of the earlier verses in chapter 11. First, you're going to notice that even though this neighbor wasn't willing to help his friend merely on the basis of friendship, without that friendship, there'd been no possibility for help. Follow what I'm saying? Though the friendship in and of itself was not enough to achieve the outcome that that man wanted. Had there been no relationship between these two men, the request would not have even been entertained. It wouldn't even have been possible. If he had gone up to a total stranger's house and knocked on the door, I don't care how much persistence you try, the only thing you would have eventually resulted in was angering that family so much they'd come out and kick you off the doorstep. It was the basis of the friendship that opened up the possibility for the appeal to be made. It would have taken a close relationship, I argue, to even withstand the burden the imposition of this kind of a request. So the man at the door knows his friend well and he knows with persistence he can motivate him. But he's also trusting that that friendship is strong enough that he's not going to wear out his welcome. That it's not going to result in angering his friend so much that the friendship dissolves. You ever had that feeling? Isn't it the case sometimes that we typically will apply the greatest pressure, make the greatest imposition upon those we're closest to? And one of the reasons we, and I'm not saying that's always right, mind you, But one of the reasons we're willing to do that is because we're willing to take a risk with that friendship on the basis that it's so strong that it's likely to survive our persistence. And think about it in your own experience. If you have a casual friend, maybe at work or school or in some other setting, someone you know but you don't know them that well, and you really need something big. You you need a big favor. You have something in your life that's going to be a real imposition on somebody. You need them to watch your dog for the weekend. You need them to uh, drive your kids somewhere across town because you don't have the time to do it. I mean, something where you know the person you ask is going to be really put out. Who do you turn to? Well, if you're like me, you turn to the people on your list that are closest to you. You don't start with the casual person you only know so-so. Partly because you assume they'll say no. And partly because even if they do say yes, that's probably not going to be a friend who wants to see you the next time you come. They'll think of you as simply using them, right? We're friends because you get something. It takes a relationship first that establishes friendship without the basis of need so that when need comes in later into that relationship, the relationship won't break 
simply because one side has a need of the other. Jesus leaves, us to us, leaves it to us, if you notice, to make the obvious comparison. He doesn't actually make any point in that part of the story. The point is made for us, and we can begin to make the parallels already. First of all, without a relationship with the Father, through faith in Christ, there is no opportunity for Him to hear our requests. No opportunity whatsoever. In fact, I'll tell you that Scripture makes clear that without faith in Jesus, the Father hears nothing from those who make appeal to him. That's a statement that sometimes causes people concern because the world is filled with people who pray. In John 9.31, we hear this. We know that God does not hear sinners. And in this context, the word sinner means an unbeliever. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Remember, simply praying by itself is not proof of spirituality. Did you know that? Spending a lot of time in prayer does not make you godly. There are cultures in this world that put us to shame when it comes to how much time they spend praying. Islamic cultures pray three times a day. There are some Eastern cultures that pray constantly, all day long. They sequester themselves for, for days of prayer. If, if you wanted to compare the average Western Christian's experience in terms of time of prayer to many other pagan religions around the world, we'd probably be way down on the list in terms of how often we spend in prayer. That's my guess. Many of them are very diligent prayers. The ability to pray gains you nothing. Prayer is not what makes you spiritual. Praying in faith to the true living God and then doing what he tells you to do, that's spiritual. That's godliness. A relationship with the Father through his Son is a prerequisite for our prayers to be heard and for any benefit to result. So first thing to note from what we hear in Jesus' statement here to the disciples in his story, number one, you have to have a relationship with the Father before prayer has of any potential to do any good in your life, to even be heard. The next thing to note is that we often approach God on his throne the same way this man approached his neighbor. And you can make this parallel for yourself, can't you? We don't sometimes seek him in prayer until we reach that moment of desperation. Only then is our response to seek God in prayer. And I don't know about you, and I won't speak for you, of course, but in my life that's so often the case, and it's not the right way to go. I'll tell you that from experience. Think of it in terms of those two men. What if the man with the need had not talked to that neighbor in six months? In fact, what if he had rarely, if ever, talked to him except when he needed to borrow a power tool? You have a neighbor like that? And then this moment comes along. Now, he has enough gumption to make the request of this neighbor, though he doesn't spend much time with him. But exactly what kind of response and what kind of relationship, for that matter, would you expect out of that kind of misuse? And though God the Father is not going to walk away from us because we don't spend time in prayer, thankfully, his faithfulness goes well beyond us so that even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. But that doesn't excuse our behavior. And I would argue that if you only pray under the need of a moment, under some desperate need, then you're really behaving in some respects like a person who uses a relationship rather than engages in a relationship. So if until we have some trauma in our life or until we have a desperate desire, some troubling uncertainty or a a fearful crisis or you name it, if those are the only moments we think prayer is important, then I would argue that you may have your answer 
for why your prayer life has not resulted in much success, if you will, in much achievement in your life. Why you may not see prayer as having much power. That may be an answer for you right there. And then that leads us to the issue of persistence. And that, of course, is the key lesson in this part of the verses we read this morning. We are to remain persistent in our requests of the Father. Now, right now, some of you are scratching your heads. You're scratching your heads. The reason you're scratching your heads is if you were here last week, you heard me tell you in no uncertain terms that Jesus' model for prayer directs us to make petitions for things that are already ordained by God. We had a long teaching on the fact that God is asking us in our model of prayer to seek His will, not our own. To confirm what we know He will do rather than to ask Him for things that we don't know He will do. And here I am today saying that we're supposed to continue persistently to petition the Father for our desires. Well, wait a minute, Steve. How do those two things fit together? How can both be true at the same time? For example, do we ask for God's will? Or do we seek God persistently for those things that are on our minds? Which is true? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes, and I'll explain why in a moment. Yes, we pray for God's will, and yes, we pray for God's plan, and yes, we petition Him persistently for those things that we desire from Him. And to understand how those two ideas fit together, we first have to move on in the text from where we just left off, because Jesus is, in fact, working Himself through this teaching to answer that very question in the minds of his disciples. Look where he goes next in Luke 11, verse 9. So, important word, so, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, you will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? One of the easiest and maybe most powerful ways to appreciate the character and the nature of of an all-powerful, invisible, all-knowing creator of the universe, how you begin to understand what that person, the person of the Godhead, is like, is by making comparisons to things in this world that we do understand very well. Like, for example, fatherhood. That's a very common parallel used in Scripture to give us a glimmer, some, some insight into the nature and the character of the God we serve. So here, Jesus compares our Heavenly Father and His response to our prayers with our typical earthly father and his nature and character under similar circumstances. And I'm saying typical because obviously not all our fathers were exactly alike. Some kinder than others. Some more generous than others. So while your own father may not be the right model from which to draw, imagine the father knows best uh, father. Imagine the, you know, leave it to beaver father, if you will. Because it's in that sense that this is intended. Jesus begins by stating that those who ask will receive. Those who seek something are going to find something. Those who desire opportunities of God are going to receive an open door. In other words, God is going to provide an answer to any of his children who seek him earnestly. I mean, that to me is a fantastically significant point that I so often forget, that I don't live according to. Point number one, God hears all prayers of his children. 
There's not a prayer you've spoken in faith that he hasn't heard. There's not a thing that you've spoken to him in prayer, in faith, and by in faith I mean having become a believer, praying now as one of his children. That it's, Remember, it's by faith that you receive the Holy Spirit, and by faith you receive the Holy Spirit and become a child of God. So now as a child of the Father, from that point forward, you ask for something, he hears it. Absolutely guaranteed. He will not ignore the requests of his children. Proverbs 15.29 says this, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalms 145.19 He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And by the way, if you wanted verses that tell you about how God responds to the prayer of his children, I could fill the teaching today with those. They're out there everywhere in Scripture because it is a precept of Scripture that God hears the prayers of his children. Why I said that's so important is that how often do you pray? Again, I'll have to speak from my own experience. I haven't been in your head when you prayed. But how often are you praying and then you finish and you have a, a sense of, well, I wonder if he hears that. I wonder if he recognized my prayer. I wonder if he acknowledged it. I wonder if it did anything. And if you're one of those who says, no, 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 I never think that. Well, I need to sit and talk with you for a while because you're so far beyond where I am in my walk that I need to learn a few things from your experience because I have that feeling all the time. You, you almost can't help it. Because, you know why? Because you don't get the immediate response. We're kind of an immediate feedback culture. I didn't get that immediate feedback. Now I'm wondering, did it do any good? Did he hear it? Scripture says he hears your prayer. You're not being ignored. Secondly, in verses 11 through 13 out of Luke today, Jesus teaches that no loving earthly father would ever respond to the earnest request made by one of his children for something good by giving that child something bad. No loving earthly father would do something like that. He says if you ask for a fish, you're not going to end up with a snake. A snake being a deadly, dangerous creature. Similarly, you wouldn't see a scorpion instead of an egg. It's interesting, in the Palestine lands and Palestinian territories of the world, scorpions are white, typically. And a white scorpion will sometimes ball itself up in a protective way or as a way of sort of of taking on a protective stance while it's sleeping. And it looks very much like an egg. If you're not careful, if you're not looking closely, if it's curled up in a place where maybe there's farm animals, other eggs, you might think it's an egg and pick it up. So to the culture in the day this was spoken, it's not inconceivable that somebody might try to play a trick on somebody by handing them a scorpion instead of an egg. So there's, there's a bit of truth, if, at least in the sense that it's possible to fool somebody in that regard. But no earthly father, as sinful as they are, as evil as we're told they are, would ever think to do something like that to, the, to their own children. So now, with that in mind, consider the heavenly father. He's without sin. He's perfect. He's all-knowing. He can do nothing but good. So... Would we expect that he would fail to give us good things as his children? Well, no, of course not. But I don't know that we really think about that in in all its consequences. Because we've just been told he hears all our requests. And now we're being told that he will always respond with what is best. Always. He does not ignore it, which means he does something with it. And what he does with it will always be the best. That's all his character knows to do. In fact, in verse 13, Jesus tells his disciple that the best God could ever give them, he's already planning to give them the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is something he was preparing to do for these gentlemen, for the disciples, on the day of Pentecost. Of course, it had not yet been given. For you and I today, that same promise exists, that upon faith we receive the Holy Spirit. He's already given you the best. He's given you his own spirit. That does not mean there is not more good things to come. It just means that if you want to ask for God to give you something, remember, he's already given you the best he could in terms of his own spirit. So the first point, as we said this morning, is that God hears the prayers of his children. He answers those prayers every time. And the second point is, he always gives us what is best. Now, if that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't give you a little motivation for your prayer time, then I'm I'm not sure I have any hope to do that. Because that was Jesus' point in making this transition out of the Lord's Prayer. Having just given all that instruction on how to pray in a way that leaves doubt maybe in your mind about whether you're going to get anything out of it, he turns right around and he says, by the way, nothing you say is ignored and everything the Father does for you will be for the best. But do you understand the significance of those verses? And I would say especially verse 13. What if the child... What if the child had turned to the father in the example of the earthly father and said, Father, I want a snake. Or what if he had turned to the earthly father and said, Father, I want a scorpion. What would a good father have done? Well, I think it's obvious, right? Naturally, a good father is going to do what is best for the child. In this case, the best answer to that question is no. No. What are you thinking? No. I'm not going to get you a snake. You can't have that video game. No. What do you think you're asking for all that? I can't afford that. No. That's not good for you. You waste your time on that video game if I give you that video game. Or you're going to spend too much time going off and doing that activity that you want to do. It's not good for you. You need to study. You, need... you see the point, right? What good, sensible parent ever says yes to everything their child asks for? I mean, if that's an idea we carry around as a thought of what it means to be a good parent, well, I'm no parent expert, but just what Scripture tells me is enough to know that's wrong. And in fact... In this culture, I think we've lost, largely lost, the significance of this point. Though we claim to understand it, I don't see it lived out in many places anymore today. Not everything that our children ask for is good for them. And children, as we know, have all kinds of desires. But what they lack is the maturity and the experience to appreciate what they should want. And so when a parent comes along and says no, they're playing the role that God has ordained for the parent to have in the case of a godly family, to simply step in and provide a guidance that the child themselves cannot do. They don't have that perspective, and they're going to pick up snakes and scorpions, though they shouldn't. So sometimes the answer, the right, loving, best thing to give to somebody who asks uh, is nothing, is to say no to the request. We always hear that, right? God answers prayers. Sometimes the answer is no. It's true, but I don't know that that, I'm not sure that really communicates the real impact of what Scripture has to say. It doesn't communicate the reason why. The reason why it's no is not because God is capricious. It's not because someday he sits there going, hmm, yeah, okay, whatever. Next time, nah. It's because his nature and his character, unchanging, unchangeable, can never do anything but what is best. Can never do anything other than what is good by his nature. I've used the example of breathing underwater. If you want to have an idea of what it means to have a nature or a character that actually limits you, which in this case we're saying God is limited by his own nature and by his own character, think of it in terms of breathing underwater. Though you want to, though it could be useful to you, though you might try hard, you will never breathe underwater. And of course I mean without equipment. I mean just drop down underneath the water and try breathing for a while and see what happens. You won't do it more than once. 
And the same is true for God. Though he may be appealed on the basis of persistent prayer by his children for doing the wrong thing, he'll never be able to do it because his nature and his character are a barrier against him ever doing something that is not good and best. He can't avoid doing what is right by his character, by his nature. So we will see no in answer to prayer because we are evil, because we have evil fleshly desires, because we don't have a limit against doing what's wrong. In fact, we have a proclivity to do what's wrong. That naturally means that more often than not, maybe, what we're asking for in the, in the scheme of God's plan for eternity is not what's good or best. And so the answer has to be no. And though we live in a permissive culture where parents look for ways to say yes, rather than considering what's best for the child and maybe having to put up with a child's disappointment and anger to the answer no, that's not the father we serve, though that's the culture we now live in. Let me just give you a passing thought as we move into the rest of the text, and that is that giving our children what's best for them is the true measure of a loving parent, because that's the measure of our Heavenly Father. We know He's good because He always gives us what's best for us. So don't measure your love for your child by how much they like your decisions. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. He always hears our prayers. He always answers, we're told. He always gives us what's best, which means sometimes He says no. And sometimes it's yes, but in a different way. Sometimes He gives us something other than what we wanted. It reminds me of when I was growing up. One time I was, I don't even remember how old, but I was determined to get for Christmas uh, a, a race car track set. Remember those things? I don't know if they still do those much anymore, where you had the cars that went around and you controlled them like this. They were, they were kind of new when I was young, and that was a big thing, and I really wanted one. It was expensive. And you know what? If I had got that, how long I would have used it? Maybe a month, right? Then it goes in the closet, and I never use it again. And my parents were smart enough to say, uh, I'm not going to blow 200 bucks on that. What we're going to do instead is we're going to put a basketball goal in the front yard at the end of the driveway. We're going to actually get the kind you cement into the ground, and it was a big, big professional, about the same price, I guess. I had never thought to ask for that. It never occurred to me that I wanted that. And Christmas Day came, and I was sure they were going to give me what I wanted because they never suggested they wouldn't. And I opened up, you know, you get to that moment on Christmas morning, and you're looking for the car track. Where is it? Where, where's the racetrack? Nothing in here. The box doesn't look big enough for it. Where is it? And my parents couldn't bring the basketball goal into the house, so they had left it out in the car, and they had to come show it to me. And I remember being very disappointed, and I doubt I hid it very well. And my parents had to say, well, he'll just have to understand later that this is a better gift. And sure enough, I was still playing on that basketball goal ten years later and enjoying it every time. Now, my parents knew what was best. They had to suffer in the moment with a spoiled, ungrateful child to get to the point where later that child, through maturing through a walk with those parents, through an experience in what the parents wanted me to experience, I could come to their point of view and say, okay, I guess you're right. That was a better choice. I'm glad you did that. Now, if that isn't your experience with God, then you're either a baby Christian or you're just not paying attention because that's exactly what he does with his own children. He is going to give you something that, though it's not what you asked for, give it time, walk with him through it for a while, and see if he didn't know what was best in the end and be willing to have a teachable heart through that experience. So let's try to put this together with last week as we wrap up. Last week, Jesus taught that when we pray, we place God at the center of our prayers, seeking his will rather than our own. And we said last week that's because the surest way to get what we desire is to pray for what the Father knows is best. Because that's what he intends to do. So if you want to think of it in simple terms, 
It's put yourself where God is. Don't ask God to come to where you are. And as I said, we do this for our children all the time. We understand this instinctively with our own kids, but we, send, we tend to forget it when we're looking up the chain, if you will, to our Heavenly Father. In fact, I'll take you one step further in that relationship you have with your own children. Don't we say yes far more often to our children when they're seeking the things that we've taught them are good and proper and correct and right? I mean, if your child says, I'd like to delay my bedtime for 20 minutes because I I would like to read this chapter of Scripture that I haven't had a chance to finish today. Are you more or less likely to say yes to that request versus 20 more minutes to watch a television program? I mean, and use whatever example in your own experience might fit, but it's the same pattern, isn't it? It's, not, it's because you want to encourage certain behaviors, and when you see their response being adopting those behaviors, well, yeah, you give license for that to some degree. When you see the inappropriate behaviors, you clamp down. I mean, that's how you get people to mold to new behaviors. That's how we do it in our family life. That's how we do it at work. That's how human nature works. So we encourage and we teach our children what is right. We model it in our own life, and then we give opportunity for them to adopt those behaviors in their lives by opening up doors for them where we want them to go and closing doors where we don't want them to go. And our Heavenly Father does exactly the same thing. He desires that we would learn His ways and we would seek those, not our own. And so, when we go to the Father in prayer and we seek strictly after our own desires and not after His, which would be against the model that Christ showed us in the Lord's Prayer, then you should expect a lot of no. So why persistence? Why persistence, then? Are we saying that I'm just going to wear God down? Now, parents, here's a parallel you want to be careful about, because in our lives, that works. In his world, it doesn't. A child desiring the wrong thing can eventually wear you down to the point you give in, though we, we shouldn't. We often do. But you don't get that from God, except in one very specific way. Sometimes, and there are plenty of examples out of Scripture to back this up, sometimes God will allow something that he's already said no to strictly for the purpose of teaching you a lesson. The best example I can think, I taught recently at the church in Georgia when I was there, is the story of Balaam. And because of time, I won't go through all that today. I'll give you two choices. You can ask me about it later, or you can get the CD or the, t- or the teaching off the web and listen to it for yourself. But Balaam is an excellent example out of chapter 22 in Numbers of a man who was asking for the wrong thing repeatedly. God finally said, okay, go. But he did it strictly for the purpose of showing that man how wrong he was. That's not where you want to be, just as a side note. You never want to be doing the thing God has already said you don't want to do and then have him let you do it. That's a bad thing. But apart from that specific example, we go to the Father persistently so that in our persistent asking and his persistent answering according to what is best, we learn His values. We learn His character. If, if you now are the child looking at your parent, tell me if this isn't true. Didn't you know the kinds of requests that would typically get a yes from dad and the kinds that were going to get a no? Or mom? Knowing what dad values and what he appreciates had some direction in your life. It had some influence on whether or not you even sought those things. Oh, I know I can't ask dad if I can stay out late drinking. <laughs> He's going to say no to that. So I don't bother trying to ask him, right? And I assume you don't do it without him knowing. Oh, I'm not going to ask Dad if I can drive the car. I'm only 15, and I know I'm supposed to have a parent. And I really just want to run up to the store real quick, but he'll tell me it's not going to happen, so I won't even bother asking. But you only know that because you know the man. 
Because maybe you did ask once and you got to know and you got to talking to about even asking. At some point, you learn about what works and what doesn't. And similarly in prayer with the Father, a Father who only gives us what's best, persistence changes us, not the Father. By persistence, we learn His will. By persistence, we eventually get something. We knock and we do have a door opened. We seek and we do find. But it may not be the thing we came to the door wanting in the first place. It may not be the first thing we asked for. It may be, over time, our requests begin to move into His will, and then as we see those requests answered and other ones said no to, we begin to pick up on the pattern. We learn something about who God is, and we learn about what it means to walk in His will, to live according to His will, not our own. And if you don't know anything else about Scripture, let me tell you that the totality of this book is all about directing us toward what He believes is good and holy and true and righteous in contrast to what we think is good so that we'll leave this and adopt this in faith. And prayer is one of his chief mechanisms for getting us to do that. So as you understand the earlier verses in chapter 11 and now you understand these, let me summarize what he's taught about prayer, what Jesus has taught his disciples. Our Father hears our prayers, he always answers them. Our Father will always give us what is best. Sometimes the Father will not give us what we want because He has a better plan, because what we want is not best. But He asks that we seek Him persistently because only in persistence will our prayers be answered. And what persistence achieves is not a persuading of God to change His mind or a wearing Him down. What it achieves, rather, is giving us repeated opportunities to learn and understand our Father's character and nature and His will and conform ourselves to Him. And if you haven't had a prayer life that is disciplined in that way, that is continuous, that doesn't wait for the urgent moment, but does it continually, then I'm not sure you really have a stand from which or a place from which to even disagree or understand this. You need to try it. You need to understand it by by experiencing it. Does God not, in fact, begin to mold us and change us and our values and our desires in this process or not? You have to be there to know it. Scripture tells us that's what happens. Because once we know the Father better, once we understand His will and then begin to pray for it because it is also our desire, then when we begin to receive the answers to those prayers as yes, that confirmation, that feedback loop is powerful. Some of the most powerful prayers I've ever met are the ones who are so in touch with God's character and nature and with what to pray for that their prayers are answered as a foregone conclusion because they're praying for what God has ordained. That's how God works. And that's what Jesus wanted these men to understand. Persistence is necessary. There are answers waiting. Our desires to pray should not be self-centered. You ever heard the term power of prayer? There's no power in prayer. But there is power in the God who answers prayer. And the God who answers prayer desires that we bring our petitions to them just in the same way that the Father that you and I may have had, or earthly fathers in general, desire that their children come to them with their needs and their petitions, not so that the Father can simply be a Walmart of need providing, but so that there can be relationship in those opportunities to provide. He's far more interested in our relationship than in our needs, though one produces the other so often. Let's go to him in prayer as we conclude for the day. And Daniel comes up to lead us in one last song. Father, we confess this morning that when we do pray so often, we pray on the basis of our own needs and our 
own selfish desires. But Father, we know that's okay. Our own, our own family life, Father, tells us that no father is upset at a child who comes with a request. There's no shame in the request. There's no shame in the need, even if it be self-focused, self-centered. And a good father will look at that child with that need as you teach us in Scripture and do what's right, do what's best, and encourage that child to return again and again so that they might learn the right things in life. So, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray for that same desire as Jesus taught his disciples in the Gospel this morning. Let us pray with a desire to follow that model that Jesus provided, a prayer life, Father, that reflects seeking your will, your kingdom, your glory, not our own. Acknowledging we do have needs and seeking those daily needs, Father, and acknowledging we do have sin and recognizing you have forgiven us, Father, because of the work of your Son on the cross. And in that model, Father, let us also maintain a desire and a motivation to be in prayer continually, not because we want every answer to be yes, though our flesh wants it, Father, our spirit knows better, but because we want a relationship with you. We want to know your character. We want to know your heart, Father. We want to do your will. To the power you give us through the Holy Spirit, we want to reflect you in this world. Let us have the discipline, Father, the desire and the patience to engage in prayer, though we may not know your will at first, though we may not understand what is the right thing to ask for, Give us the desire, Father, to simply maintain that relationship through prayer so that we might come to know those things in in accordance with your will and in your timing. Because, Father, we desire to be used mightily in your kingdom. And we know, Father, that you desire to work through us to your own glory. Help grow us to that mission, Father, to that purpose. Through prayer, through study of the word, through worship, through fellowship, in all the ways you have so graciously given to this fellowship and to the body of Christ wherever they gather. Let your word, Father, go out and not return void. Let us go out, Father, and not fail to seek after you and to present you to a lost and dying world. To be your will, Father, we pray you would gather us back here again next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.